Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Uh, this series of podcasts, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, I encourage you to do so by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth Podcast. Our study today of the Gospel of Mark takes us to Mark chapter 8. We'll be in the middle of the chapter, starting around verse 22. We've really reached this, the, the climactic moment now in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we, we've noted all along that the Gospel of Mark has two central uh, uh, points. Number one is, who is Jesus Christ? And number two is, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? With regard to the first question, we've seen that the uh, uh, demons and uh, know who Jesus is right from the beginning. We know who you are, the Holy One of God, in chapter 1. We saw the Pharisees in chapters 2 and the beginning of 3 grappling with the question of who is Jesus. And as they began to inquire further and further as to who he is, they decided that they didn't like this, this Jesus that, that they were being confronted with. We've seen the disciples then beginning to grapple with who is Jesus, so that in chapter 4, when he calms the storm, they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Uh, and they're going to continue to grow in their understanding and discernment. Now, in chapter 6, 7, and 8, we saw these the sandwich uh, episodes where Jesus feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6 and the 4,000 in chapter 8. And in between, he declares all foods clean and the symbolism of picking up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread. Of You now have enough food to feed Israel in seven baskets in chapter 8. You now have enough food to, to feed the nations. And what you need to know is, is I am the source of your bread and the source of your nourishment. Now, that passage ended in Mark 8 uh, with the feeding of the 4,000 with, do you not yet see or understand? Uh, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not yet hear? Uh, so it, it, this, the disciples are continuing to grow and grapple with who is Jesus. And then in verse 22, it says, they came to Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is a city just to the east of Capernaum uh, on the northern shore, but the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee on the eastern side of the Jordan River. It says, they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a, a, a blind man uh, to him and entreated him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, Jesus brought him, uh, uh, he brought him out of the village. After spitting on his eyes and laying hands upon him, he, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I am seeing them like trees walking about. Then again, he laid his hands upon his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored. And he began to see everything clearly. And he sent him home to his, he sent him to his home, saying, "Do not even enter the village." Now, if we look at the story just for the miraculous part of itself, we're, we're, there's a little bit of a puzzlement. It seems as though Jesus' healing the first time with this man wasn't actually sufficient. He, he didn't actually see clearly. But but I think if we understand the story in light of the Gospel of Mark and what's going on, we're going to see this man is growing in his ability to see gradually. Do you not yet see? Do you have eyes? But don't see. So this story now, Mark puts the story next to illustrate that sometimes seeing and understanding who Jesus is is a gradual process. So Jesus asked the man, do you see anything? And he says, well, I, I see men for, uh, I'm seeing them like trees walking about, which probably indicates, by the way, that this man was not born blind. He, he had seen at some point in time, he knows what people look like, and, and he knows what trees look like, but he doesn't see clearly. Then Jesus uh, touches him a second time. Um, and this time he began to see everything clearly. Now, immediately after this episode, Mark takes us to probably the central episode in each of the uh, of what's called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
are these three Gospels that, that, that look very similar. After all, most of the stories in the Gospel of Mark are found in Matthew and in Luke. So the word synoptic means to see together. John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel, is, is radically distinct. So we often read Matthew, Mark, and Luke in light of one another. And in each of those three Gospels, the central episode becomes Jesus is taking the disciples aside and saying, okay, who do the people say that I am and who do you say that I am? Now, Mark's gospel, in order to understand this particular passage well, we need to also understand that Mark has kind of a geographical uh, uh, storyline in, in terms of the way he's telling his narrative. You may have noticed that so far in the gospel of Mark, Jesus has never entered the city of Jerusalem. Now, we know, especially from the gospel of John, that it appears that Jesus has made multiple trips to the city of Jerusalem. But Mark has never taken us to Jerusalem. Jesus has never been there yet. And it says in verse 27 that Jesus went up uh, with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now Caesarea Philippi is at the base of Mount Hermon, which is way up to the north, north of the Sea of Galilee. And thus Mark places this particular event, Jesus' discussion with the disciples as to who he really is, um, as far north as possible. From this point forward, Jesus is then going to begin to head southward to Jerusalem. So his journey to Jerusalem is going to begin. But the disciples now are, are going to be grappling with this question of who is Jesus. And just like this man who is blind and began to see only gradually and then finally comes to a, a clear understanding of who Jesus is, so also disciples are going to see gradually, a little bit further, a little bit more, a little bit more, who Jesus really is. Now, this is the central episode, uh, but it's not the center of the gospel story. In other words, if if the ministry of Jesus was three or three and a half years long, and perhaps it was, we're probably in the last nine months of Jesus' ministry. Remember, the Gospels were not written in chronological order so that this event happened before that event, which happened before this event, uh, etc. But as you noticed uh, uh, with the story of the healing of the man in Bethsaida, Mark has put that episode right after Jesus telling the disciples or asking them, do you not yet see or understand? And not only that, but he puts the episode of this man who, who is healed from his blindness right before this episode with the disciples. And the idea of that is, is that this story helps us understand what's going on. The disciples are going to gradually come to a better understanding of who Jesus is. But if we put this episode perhaps nine months before the death of Jesus, what's happening then in the, in the story, the narrative, the larger scope of, of the Jesus story, is that Jesus is now beginning to focus on his private ministry with his disciples preparing them and equipping them for their ministry of the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Um, Jesus is going to leave the scene. He's going to die, rise again, and send the Spirit. And the disciples are going to take over from here on out. So the public ministry of Jesus is what happens prior to this episode. And you can kind of look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke all in the same way. Whenever you see this episode of Jesus taking the disciples and asking them, Who do you say that I am? Know that everything that occurs before that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is primarily the public ministry of Jesus. He's gathering disciples. He's preaching publicly. He's doing public miracles, um, proclaiming and offering the gospel of repentance to all. And then whatever happens after this episode in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, is the private ministry with his disciples. Okay, look, I've given the people opportunity to repent. I've proclaimed to them the gospel. I've done miracles amongst them. I've preached amongst them. They've had time to repent, and now those who are going to repent essentially are, have, have begun to follow me. And now he takes this inner core of disciples and says, okay, I now need to prepare you for what's going to take place next. What's going to take place next is we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise again, and then I'll send you the Spirit, and you guys will go off and carry forth the ministry 
unto the nations. Now, this is not going to make sense to the disciples. So just like the man in Bethsaida, they're going to see, but not very clearly. Uh, and then they're going to grow and grow and gain, and gain an insight. Now, what's going to have to happen first, however, in this private ministry with the disciples is, we have to come to a clear understanding as to who I am. So verse 27, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On his way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do the people say that I am? Well, they told him that some said, well, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and, and others say one of, the pro excuse me, one of the prophets. He continued by questioning them, but, but who do you say that I am? Well, Peter answered and said to him, You're the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, after, and, and after three days rise again. He was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Jesus begins his questioning of the disciples with, Who do the people say that I am? Uh, they say, Well, some say you're John the Baptist. And we know from the Gospel of Luke that that was perhaps the claim of, of Herod Antipas. He was fearful that John the Baptist, whom he had had killed, was, had maybe come back from the dead, and that's who Jesus was. Others say that you're Elijah. And this is a common perception, of course, because in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, it says that before the Lord comes, and before that great and terrible day of the Lord comes, Elijah will come. So the Jews were anticipating the coming of the Messiah, or the coming of the Christ, or the coming of the King. But they thought, well, Jesus can't be him because Elijah hasn't come. And so maybe Jesus actually is Elijah. Jesus explains, by the way, in the Gospel of Matthew in particular, that John the Baptist is the one who has come, the spirit and ministry of Elijah. Luke chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 11 both refer to this. So Jesus, in fact, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says explicitly um, that, that John the Baptist was Elijah. Not in the sense of a reincarnation, but in the prophetic ministry of Elijah. Remember, Elijah is essentially the first prophet. Uh, not literally, but of course, that's just the Jewish way of thinking. He's the first of the prophets. And Elijah is the one who comes before the coming of David, before the coming of the king. So also before the coming of the next king, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. So also Elijah or someone in the prophetic ministry of Elijah must come. And others say that you're one of the prophets. Okay, that's all great, Jesus says. Jesus says. But now who do you say that I am? And for the first time in the Gospels, we can see that the disciples are beginning to understand. But remember, with Peter's confession, you are the Christ. We should not read that to say, oh, Peter fully, Peter sees clearly. In fact, the story of the healing of the man in Bethsaida tells us he's not seeing clearly. He sees people, but they look like trees. And until Jesus touches them again, uh, they will not be able to fully understand. The fact that Peter and, and the disciples don't fully understand is evidenced by the fact that Jesus follows this story up, or this episode up, with by saying, okay, now let me explain. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. I'm going to be killed, and then three days later I'm going to rise again. This was not going to fit with Peter's conception or the disciples' conception of what the Messiah was going to be. The Messiah is going to be a military, political ruler who's going to sit on his throne in Jerusalem. And, and we're, we're the inner circle of 12, and we're going to be like sitting on his right and on his left, and we're going to have power, we're going to rule, and we're going to defeat Rome. And we're going to establish a Jewish dynasty from Jerusalem, and it's going to have peace and prosperity upon the earth. The idea of a dying king doesn't make any sense. How can you be a king and be dead? And rising from the dead, as we'll see in chapter 9, it doesn't even make sense to them, and we'll discuss that next time. So the fact that Peter doesn't understand this is evidenced by the fact that Peter turns around and says, uh, uh, took him aside and began to rebuke him in verse 32. 
But Jesus, turning around and seeing his disciples, he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's interests. Now remember, the Gospels are best understood in light of this, this, this idea of two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing in, which is evidenced by the healings and the miraculous things he's doing, as well as his proclamation that he's restoring uh, uh, Israel, he's restoring God's people and, and establishing his dynasty, but also evidenced by the fact that he's defeating the devil. He's casting out Satan and he's casting out demons. Uh, the, the kingdom of God has come upon you as evidenced by the, by the demons being cast out. Remember, he has entered the strong man's home and he has bound the strong man so that way he can plunder his goods. Now, the other kingdom, of course, is the kingdom of God ruled by Jesus. So one ruled by Jesus, one ruled by the devil. And Peter's thinking from a human perspective. He, he's not thinking from God's perspective. He's thinking from a kingdom of this world perspective. And therefore, that's Satan's idea. Now, I don't think Jesus is supposing that Peter is actually possessed by Satan, um, but it's, it's a satanically influenced concept. It's, it's one that fits with the way Satan does things, not with the way I do things. Jesus continues, to, says in verse 34, he summoned his disciples and said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Boy, if there's ever a passage I think that, uh, that we should stop and memorize, it's, Matt, it's uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 34 uh, through 38. What does it mean to be a disciple? Uh, who is Jesus and what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, now we're beginning to see that who is Jesus is understood by the disciples themselves because you are the Christ. Though they don't see clearly, they still see men that look like trees and, and it's not clear yet. But who is Jesus is becoming more and more and more clear. But now we have the epitome of the definition for what does it mean to be a disciple. What it means to be a disciple means to be with Jesus and to follow Jesus. And now we realize it means to follow him to the cross. If anyone wishes to be my disciple, let him take up his cross, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, Luke chapter 9, by the way, has the same phrase and it says, uh, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross daily. You know, Luke just adds this, this daily idea of cross-bearing. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. What does a prophet a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Now remember the parable of the sower, which I had said before, is probably the um, key parable for understanding the New Testament as well as the, the church even today. Uh, if you want to be Jesus' disciples, then you must be willing to endure, endure the stones. Uh, the stones are persecution and suffering and opposition that, that comes by, follow, by being a follower of Jesus and the the one upon whom the seed fell amongst the stones, it, it withered away and it didn't bear any fruit. The good soil is the one who bears fruit, even in the midst of stones. It's the one who takes up his cross and follows Jesus. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.